I'm ABC's Aaron Katursky. This is Bringing America Back, What You Need to Know. As the country reopens, there are new concerns it's happening too fast. The phased approach in New York is now nearing New York City. Suburbs to the north and east are reopening, and Mayor Bill de Blasio said the city should be ready in June. We're thinking about all the pieces. How do people come back to work? What kind of precautions need to be in place? How do we monitor it? How do we inspect it? How do we make sure everyone's doing what they're supposed to be doing? The fear is what happens if people stop being careful. Images of packed pools, yacht clubs, and outdoor bars from Lake of the Ozarks in central Missouri over the weekend alarmed those who've been promoting social distancing, mask wearing, and other measures meant to slow the spread. St. Louis Mayor Lita Krusen called the behavior irresponsible and dangerous. Mayor, when you saw the revelry, what went through your head? Very high-risk behavior. And, you know, the Lake of the Ozarks is about 150 miles or so from the city of St. Louis, but lots of people go to the lake. Uh, people throughout the Midwest go to the Lake of the Ozarks to have fun, to enjoy themselves. And I'm sure a lot of the people that went there over the weekend, you know, just sort of stayed with their own family and, and did enjoy themselves. But this behavior that you see at the pools is just highly risky behavior. And then most of those folks probably came back home last night or this morning to their own communities here in St. Louis or across the Midwest. And, you know, it's it's uh, very likely that that sort of behavior would lead to more cases across the region. What is St. Louis doing in response, or what are you encouraging all those people to do in response? If you were in a situation over the weekend where you were not socially distancing and you were not uh, wearing a mask, please, when you come home, self-quarantine yourself for two weeks. Uh, it's only the right thing to do, not just for yourself, but for your own family, for your friends, for your coworkers. Um, when you take those kinds of uh, uh, risky behaviors, you really need to then come back and self-quarantine yourself for a couple of weeks. And I hope, hope like heck, they don't get sick. If they do, it will certainly reinforce the messages that public health officials have sent. If there is not, in the next couple of weeks, a big outbreak that results from those gatherings. Will that send a different message? You know, it's, it's possible, but one of the things that we do expect is to see an increase in the number of cases because we have just recently begun to crack the door open uh, to businesses. Restaurants are, are opening, retail is opening in the St. Louis region. Uh, large venues will be opening in a couple of weeks. And we know that as, you know, we've been on an eight-week uh, stay-at-home order. And we know that as people begin to expand their circles, again, that it is likely that there will be an increase in cases. But we have to still take the precautions of staying six feet apart and wearing a mask. It's just too risky not to. All of us are trying to figure this out. We have to learn how to coexist with COVID at least until there's a vaccine, and none of us know when that will be. St. Louis Mayor Lita Krusen, our thanks to you. Today's opening bell at the New York Stock Exchange heralded the return of floor trading. There were a quarter of the brokers there and new choreography after two months of working from home. Stacey Cunningham is president of the Stock Exchange. What led you to reopen the floor now? All of our decisions about keeping the exchange open or closed have been tied to local conditions and what we're seeing evolving, making sure we can keep people safe in the building and their communities and avoid strain on the healthcare system. So with the cases in New York City on a decline and with what we've learned about how to protect ourselves from COVID-19, 
we feel like we can create an environment that reduces risk for people to come back into the trading floor and provide the service they're typically used to providing. You'd already been doing things like temperature checks before the floor was closed for two months. What are some of the new restrictions on the floor traders now? So some of the precautions that we had in place back at that point in time we'll continue to have, but we're building on that. So there will be medical screening, as you referenced, with temperature checks and questionnaires. Uh, There will also be PPE required, which we didn't have in March, but now we recognize that that's a really useful tool in protecting against COVID-19. So everyone that works on the trading, that's on the trading floor, will have a mask on at all times. We'll have social distancing. We're only bringing back about 25% of the trading floor population. So that enables us to create a new choreography where we won't have people walking across the trading floor We've installed plexiglass, we've installed markings on on the trading floor and in common areas to keep people more than six feet apart. So who's back now, and when do you think everybody comes back? So we're bringing back less than 15% of people that typically work in the building, and that's skewed toward the trading floor. So it's really only those that support the trading floor. And then on the trading floor community, it's less than 25% of the people that typically are here. And again, skewed toward those most impacted by the shutdown. So there are a number of different types of traders on the floor. Some of them work for big firms and some of them work for small independent firms. So our our first initial phase will focus on those small independent firms with sometimes fewer than 20 people that work for them. Uh, And the majority of their income is tied to their trading on the floor. So we're prioritizing those. I think that's an important message for anybody considering their reopening plans, whether it be in New York or, or around the country that if we can focus on those businesses that are impacted the most and allow those that are able to provide a good portion of their services from afar to c- continue to do so to limit risk and reduce the spread, these reopening plans aren't about going back to normal. They're about taking small steps that start to, to reopen and restart the economy, but still having important measures in place to protect from the spread, because we're not on the other side of this yet. Stacy Cunningham, president of the New York Stock Exchange. Starting tonight, the United States is restricting travel from Brazil, which has the second highest number of coronavirus cases in the world and now the highest daily death rate from coronavirus in the world. Claire Bauer joins us from Rio. Epidemiologists said today, Claire, Brazil's death toll could climb fivefold to 125,000 by early August. How does all that feel in Rio? There's a real disconnect. Uh, it depends where you live. Uh, I personally, I live in a middle-class neighborhood where people are able to stay home, um, and they have been observing the uh, social distancing measures that were put in place here in mid-March I have many friends who haven't left their house at all in two and a half months. Uh, they're absolutely terrified of, of getting the virus. Uh, you can still shop. Uh, it's mandatory now in Rio to wear masks. So when you go out, everybody's wearing a mask. But just a couple of miles up the road from me is one of the biggest slums in South America, Hosinha. And this is a place where thousands of people live, hundreds of thousands of people live. Uh, many of them can not afford to stay at home. They have to go out every day to make money to put food on the table. So uh, in many cases, these people can't even afford a mask. So in the poorer areas of Rio, yes, the virus is spreading. Even without the virus, though, enforcing hygiene recommendations and physical distancing in the favelas where the the virus has really spread, as you suggest, that's difficult anyway, isn't it? Oh, very difficult. Uh, When they initially uh, ordered a lockdown here in Rio, uh, which was in mid-March, Immediately after that, there were reports that parts of Hosinha, which is a favela just up the road from me, uh, parts of Hosinha didn't have um, running water. 
People didn't even have access to water to wash their hands. So for, for many people, for millions of Brazilians who survive on, on dollars a day, it's just impossible for them to stay at home. If they do stay at home, they're, they're in a very small, confined space with usually up to six or seven other people. In Brazil, there is no health minister right now, and, and President Bolsonaro has dismissed this as a little flu. What's the government saying, and how are the people responding to, to those messages? Well, Brazil is incredibly divided right now, uh, like the United States. Uh, the Bolsonaro supporters uh, love him. Every outrageous thing he says about uh, coronavirus, about the lockdown measures, they support him the whole way. People that don't support Bolsonaro are more and more um, outraged by the things he said. I mean, this is a president who when asked about a surge in coronavirus deaths, responded by saying, so what? What do you want me to do? I can't work miracles. And he said things like, I'm not a grave digger, okay? And he has downplayed the virus as a little flu. He said, you've got to fight it like a man. You've got a president saying these kind of, um, these kind of things and then state governors who have basically banded together um, in opposition and have imposed early on lockdowns, but are now being incredibly pressured by the government to ease up and allow people to start going back to work. Uh, in Rio, the mayor here, who is evangelical, just announced that he's reopening the churches, despite the fact that all non-essential businesses here in Rio are still closed. And um, experts here say that Brazil is weeks away still from a peak. Claire Bauer from Rio. Now over to Amy Robach. Thanks, Aaron. With me now is our Dr. Jen Ashton. And Dr. Jen, uh, it's every week, every couple of days, we're getting new information constantly. And so we continue to hear more from the CDC about what they are learning right. about this virus. What do we know at this point? Well, first, to put this into context, Amy, and it's so important to remember this, in science and medicine, we don't just assume we know something and then move on and start looking at other things. We constantly reassess, reevaluate, and restudy. So people should expect to hear new things. What we know at this point is this is a highly transmissible virus. It is spread via respiratory droplets that it attaches to the cells in our respiratory tract, causing infection and inflammation, and then can go on to affect numerous other organ systems. And according to Dr. Burks, there is, quote, clear evidence that wearing masks or mm. face coverings helps prevent the spread of this virus to others. Yeah. And also from Dr. Burks, uh, she also said that there is a higher percentage of people than previously believed who are asymptomatic. So they have COVID-19, yep. but they didn't know it. Exactly. And the theories on this, Amy, are ranging all over the place, really, as scientists and researchers continue to learn about this. The theory at this point is that approximately 35 to 40 percent of people who are infected have no symptoms at all, that there's a one to 14 day incubation period with an average of about five days that people can be contagious and infectious before they start showing symptoms anywhere from one to three days before and knew that people who test positive again after recovering and having tested negative are thought now not to be contagious. So that's pretty big theory. Yeah, that point. is a big theory. And we're what, six months into this virus yeah. just about. So there's still a lot we don't know. 
hundred <laughs> percent. You're like, people, deep breath. Yeah, people dedicate their entire careers to learning about viruses. So we're at the beginning of this. In terms of what we don't know at this point, obviously, how to prevent COVID-19 disease, when or if a vaccine will arrive. Remember, there's never been a coronavirus developed for humans. We don't know the best treatment for severe or even mild COVID-19 disease. And we've really don't know the best testing strategy. So we're just learning that there are enough tests, but how to use those tests, who to screen, when to screen, when to test, and what to do with that data, we still do not know yet. Very overwhelming to see those <laughs> There's a what lot we to don't do. knows. All right. <laughs> Thank you very you much, bet. Dr. Jen. On April 24th, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp became one of the country's first officials to begin easing coronavirus restrictions in his state. And now, over one month later, many residents in densely populated areas like Atlanta are still questioning their safety as the total number of cases in Georgia has now surpassed 43,000. Here to discuss the current situation in Atlanta is Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms. Mayor, thanks for being with us. And I know that you were extremely critical of the governor when he first eased those restrictions. How are you feeling now? How is your city holding up? Well, thank you for having me, Amy. What I said then was that I hope that the governor was right and I was wrong because my fear was that more people would die. Um, And I would say right now we're somewhere in between, whereas we were seeing an increase of around 25 to 30 percent on over a seven day period of people testing positive and people dying. We're somewhere around 12 to 15 percent. So we are not faring um, as badly as I thought that we would, but we certainly are not out of the woods yet. And I think that people people have heard that Georgia is open for business. And so this weekend we saw people out and about um, and not always practicing social distancing in the way that we have encouraged them to do. And you've announced a five phase reopening plan right now for Atlanta. Tell us how you hope that will work. Well, we are closely following the CDC guidelines. And so we had a committee that was comprised of a cross section of people, corporate leaders, people from the healthcare community, et cetera, small business leaders, to give us input on how we should phase in reopening as a city. So we are approaching phase two because we are seeing a 14-day decline in our numbers. So that takes us into phase two, where we begin to um, ease restrictions, but still following all of the guidelines that we've seen come forth from the CDC, wearing masks when in public, limiting uh, crowds to no more than 10, telecommuting, telecommuting where possible. Um, and it's a five-phase approach. And so we are just in phase two in the city of Atlanta. And I, th- I think in large part that has um, that's what you're seeing reflected in, in our numbers. Speaking of the numbers, I'm curious what you think about this. Last week, the governor's office actually apologized after a Georgia Public Health Department chart wrongly reported that downward trend in COVID cases. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution reporting it was at least the third error in as many weeks. So how concerned are you about the data you're getting out of the state health department? Well, it is concerning because the data is only as good as the data is good. And so So much of what we are doing in the city of Atlanta is driven by data and by metrics and it's evidence based. And so it's difficult when you don't have a third party um, that you can get data from. We have to rely on our Department of Health. And, you know, I understand that mistakes happen. Um, But when people are already apprehensive about going back to business as usual, this makes it that much more difficult 
for us to trust what we're getting from the state. And, Mayor, quickly we'll end on this last topic. You endorsed Joe Biden for president early on. Your name has now been mentioned as a potential VP candidate. Interested in the job? Well, Amy, I I have a lot on my plate right now managing Atlanta with COVID-19. But what I will say is what I've said continuously. I want Joe Biden to put on that ticket the person he thinks will best help him beat Donald Trump in November of 2020. So I'm honored to have my name mentioned in that light and, and we'll see what happens. Well, we will certainly be watching Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms. As always, thank you for your time and for your dedication to your city. Thank you. While governments across the world try to contain COVID, the race for a vaccine is on. Pharmaceutical giant Johnson & Johnson announcing a lead vaccine candidate for COVID-19. It is just one of many vaccine candidates already in testing phases. The World Health Organization has said there are over 100 vaccine candidates and at least eight in human trials. Here to talk about this road to the vaccine is principal scientist and immunologist for Johnson & Johnson, Rinka Boss. Welcome and thanks for being with us, Rinka, all the way from the Netherlands. So if you can, walk us through what a typical day looks like for you right now. Thanks for having me on the show, Amy. Uh, Well, we have been working extremely hard since uh, January, since uh, the sequence of the virus uh, has been published. Um, Well, I start always my day with having breakfast with my kids and taking them to school as my husband is uh, leaving for the hospital early in the morning. Um, But I I meet every day with my team. We discuss what needs to be done, any updates from the day before. We have a lot of logistics to discuss as well because we also have to keep the social distancing. So we have only two people maximum in one laboratory. Uh, As soon as people have a cough or a, a dripping nose, they have to stay home and activities have to be taken over by colleagues. Um, We work very closely with other people in the discovery organization, the preclinical team, the designing team. And now we also really start to work close together with the rest of the organization that is really producing the vaccine for clinical trials and is already preparing for production of large amounts of vaccines for distribution and for emergency use. Wow. I mean, it's remarkable to hear how you start your day off as a mom, like so many people. And yet now you've got the the world watching to see what you can do to save the rest of us. How much pressure do you and your team feel to come up with this vaccine and to get it right? It's actually not that much pressure. We really like doing our job. So we feel we're doing our job. It is way more busy, of course, than normally. Uh, but we're just trying to do the job uh, we can uh, the best way we can. Um, and for us, it's also quite exciting time to be able to contribute uh, to a vaccine like this. So that's, um, yeah, I don't feel uh, really uh, the pressure. Now, we've heard from a lot of experts who say that 12 to 18 month timeline that we've heard from other people for getting a vaccine is just way too optimistic. What do you think uh, about that timeline? That's really difficult to say. We are really dependent also on the regulatory agencies. So we can uh, we do a proposal to regulatory agencies and they come back and then we have a discussion uh, how, how yeah, what the best way is to go forward. Uh, So also for phase three uh, trials, this is very complicated because you don't know yet which countries uh, you should do the trial in because you have to chase the virus. The the trial has to be in a country where there is still a virus going around. So those are quite uh, complicated uh, discussions. So it's very difficult to say uh, something exactly about the timeline. Rinka Boss, best of luck. We're certainly all rooting for you. Thank you. And coming up next right here, when we come back, sports slump is real. Kids forced to sit on the sidelines due to the pandemic, the setbacks, and also some ways families can navigate them. Stay with us. 
Well, as kids across the country stay inside, they are missing out on sports and activities that were once a huge part of their daily lives. So no matter what age level, kids are definitely facing a sports slump and parents worrying about how it will impact them not only physically but mentally as well. Two siblings who are living through a sports slump, Emma and Josh Satanko, are talented gymnasts that went from 16 hours a week at the gym to now just three hours a week on Zoom. Here's their story. I'm Josh Tatanko. I'm 15 years old. I am a freshman in high school, and I'm a level 10 gymnast. Hi, my name is Emma Tatanko. I'm 13. I'm in seventh grade, and I'm a gymnast. I started gymnastics when I was four years old. I started when I was four years old, too, from watching Josh do gymnastics. When I was around nine or 10, I went to this gym called Premier in New Jersey, and my coach he looked at me and he saw potential in me. He saw that there's something there that I was dedicated and I wanted to try to do my best. My biggest accomplishment in my opinion was when I got second place at nationals on the rings. And that was a super big milestone in my life. I went six days a week, four hours a day. I went four days a week, four hours a day. Last year, which was the beginning of my competition season, I got hurt. And so I was out for two months with a dislocated elbow. My goal was to get back to where I was and possibly even better. But then this pandemic hit and it just ruined everything. It just crushed me. Recently, we were having states, regionals, and the nationals. And all that got canceled. My last day of gym was mid-March. Doing Zoom calls is not the same as being in the gym, conditioning, working out, staying in shape, being on the equipment definitely is a big thing. My biggest worry is getting back into the swing of things. I'm mostly worried about my mental health and how I'm going to work my brain into working long hours and grinding and working hard again to achieve where I was before this pandemic. I'm worried that like I'm going to lose my strength, I'm going to lose some skills. My biggest worry is mentally and physically because I'm definitely going to get out of shape and then my mindset could be off and it's definitely hard. So how can we help children like Emma and Josh with the emotional and physical stress of the sports slump? Well, former head coach of the seven-time NCAA champion UCLA women's gymnastics team and author of the book Life is Short, Don't Wait to Dance, Valerie Condosfield, affectionately referred to as Miss Val, is here to help. Thank you for being with us. And I know parents everywhere are concerned about their kids and the activities they once participated in. How can parents handle this mental and physical slump for their children? You know, that's a great question. It's the question that I've been answering, I think, every single day on Zoom calls like this uh, with children and athletes, not just gymnasts. But first of all, I think that the pressure that we feel, the anxiety, the stress, it's like a pressure cooker inside of us. And what I've found with our team is that the best way to start alleviating that stress is to communicate. And first of all, parents, just sit your kids down and just share your feelings vulnerably and then ask them how they're feeling. And most important part, I think when you ask someone a question is to really quiet your mind and listen to their responses. And what Emma and Josh shared is real. How am I gonna keep my skills? How am I gonna keep my strength? I love Josh's concern about his mental game, but I was smiling as I was listening to all of that because those things, they can work on almost as well at home as they did in the gym. Obviously they can't do their skills, But now is the perfect time 
to strengthen that mental game and to be as disciplined with your mental imagery and your positive mental imagery and being able to click that in. And it's like, it's, it, it is a muscle that you have to, to work every single day to strengthen. So Josh, my suggestion to you is you go around to all six of those events in men's gymnastics and you take your time and you quiet your mind and you see yourself in competition and then you go through routines mentally and you go through at least three excellent routines a day on every single event. So that by the time you get back in the gym, that mental game is your strongest game. Uh, is there anything parents can do to get their kids ready for that return that we're all hoping for to back to sports, both mentally and physically? Well, I think that, you know, you're blessed if you have a child that is easily motivated or self-motivated. But obviously we hear from the parents who are really struggling, trying to be the mom, the educator, the gym coach, the supporter. And I get back to communicating and asking your children how they're feeling. And then what I found works really well in coaching is to bring your children into the equation of how are we going to best do this? Okay, Josh, you're, you're worried about your mental game. So let's structure your day because we all need structure in our day. And during your time that you're going to be doing your gym training, your cardio, your drills, your conditioning skills at home, let's structure in that mental game as well and help them figure it out. Have them, like I said, bring them into the equation because we all know with kids, if they are brought into the equation, they're more than likely going to be not just do what you ask them to do, but they're going to be inspired and they're going to have better intention when they are doing it. Yep. And speaking of uh, intention while they're doing it, I know that sometimes we're just talking about the depression and just not being able to stay positive as kids. So as a coach, a leader, a motivator, how can we help our kids stay positive? I think it's really important to honor your feelings as the adult, as whomever you are, honor your feelings, honor their feelings, give them a safe space. We all need that safe space to be able to say, I'm really struggling today. I'm really scared. I'm exhausted. I'm sad. Honor your feelings and then follow that up with a solution. Well, what's the solution? The first thing is control the controllables. And I think my husband has told me this at least five times a day, every single day since we've been in quarantine, because I want to control the world. I want to go help <laughs> India and Brazil and all the homeless people. And this, I want to go give food to everybody. It's like my mind goes like this. And he's like, calm down. What can you control? What's in your control? Now let's focus on how we can get 1% better today at doing that. Not that much better, just that much better <laughs> at controlling my controllables. But I still get back to, I really feel it's so important for parents to give kids a safe space to vent and then not to stay in that lull, but help them be solution-based and have the kids help you figure out what that solution is. I love that. And just 1% better. I can do that, too. Miss Val, Valerie Condosfield, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Everybody have a blessed day. Well, it's time now to take a good look at a lot of your medical questions that have been pouring in for our Dr. Jen Ashton. So, Dr. Jen, the first one asks this. Curious for more information regarding COVID-19 and blood clots, how long after recovery is there still a risk for clots? It's unclear. We really don't know yet because remember when we started to see this phenomenon of patients with moderate or critical
critical cases of COVID-19 developing blood clots in all the tiny blood vessels around their body. That's unclear whether that was specific to COVID-19, whether that's generally seen as we can with some kinds of inflammation, infection, or low blood oxygen levels. So right now, it's still in the observation stage, and we don't yet have long-term data. So right now, it appears that it's just in the acute phase, but we don't know. We're still looking at it. All right. A lot of people wanting to know how they can get back to their activities. Are performing arts safe to start doing again? For example, dance classes or theater? Well, first of all, I would love to see more videos of people doing this at home because those have been really inspiring. But this is a great question. And and really, it's about making that environment, that behavior as safe as possible. You can't reduce the risk to nothing. So you want to keep your distance, you want to keep your hands clean, and you want to wear masks unless you are literally on stage giving a performance. Otherwise, mask. Mask. Okay. And that makes sometimes theater performances very difficult, (laughs) I might imagine. All right. Next question. I've put off taking my dog to the groomer. Oh, we were just talking Mm -hmm. about this because of reports of dogs getting ill with COVID-19. Should I continue avoiding the groomer? Well, this is really an issue. You and I, our dogs are not looking so good. They're getting added, um, groomers are going to start to open up as our veterinary practices in various states, according to their governor's rules and recommendations. They are taking the utmost in precautions, a lot of them taking advantage of the warm weather and doing their grooming in outdoor environments, very well ventilated. The groomers will be wearing masks. And in terms of the risk to the animals, very, very low. The CDC has documented very isolated cases of cats and dogs becoming ill. But again, they don't seem to be getting sick and passing it to humans. Humans seem to be giving it to our pets. Okay. Well, that is certainly good to know. Our next question, how do temperature checks at office buildings help when so many people are asymptomatic? You've been talking about this. Very smart question and very appropriate to ask this question. A lot of the times, this is really about optics. It's about what other steps can we take to make people, you know, see what we're doing. But the fact of the matter is with 35, 40 percent of people infected with COVID showing no symptoms, including a fever, that might not be such a useful piece of information. We don't yet know, and we don't know how many people will have a normal temperature and, in fact, test positive. So it's something, but we absolutely don't have enough information right now to know how useful it is. All right, Dr. Jen Ashton, we appreciate it. You can submit yep. questions to Dr. Jen on her Instagram at Dr. J. Ashton. Well, it is now more important than ever to focus on self-care as we move into our new normal. And for many moms, that can be really tough without a weekly routine in place. Actress Gabrielle Union has teamed up with the digital fitness app Fit on how to show she's making it all work. Family fitness, I know, is big in your house. Your husband, Dwayne Wade, joining you in some of those workouts that you've shared on the Fit on app. Working out with a partner, do you think that makes a big difference? Yeah, it actually makes it a lot easier to have someone else be in the trenches with you, help you stay accountable um, and help you kind of meet those fitness goals. I mean, and again, especially during quarantine, it's easy to just let it go. Um, And for me, having someone that that keeps me motivated, keeps me on track, helps me, you know, give myself a little bit more peace of mind. Yeah. Accountability, accountability, getting off the couch is the hardest part sometimes, right? All right. What's your best advice to other moms about finding that workout routine that works for them? Because everybody's different. Everyone's time is different. So if you only have, let's say 15 minutes, a hit workout where it's interval training, you can do it 10 minutes, you can do it 15, 20 minutes. So if that's all you have time for, a quick hit workout, some interval training, that's amazing. If you have an hour, find a workout that's not going to 
for you. Find a workout that's going to kind of keep your brain working as well, help, helping with coordination. Um, as long as you're going to stay, you're able to stay interested, that's the workout for you. Yeah. Do you schedule your workouts? Do you like put it on your to-do list? How do you figure out where to make the time each day? I, I start out with like, you know, great intentions. And I'm like, I'm going to get up at 6 a.m. before everyone. And I'm going to work out. And guess what doesn't actually happen? <laughs> that 6 a.m. comes and goes. I hit that snooze. So and then I just have to find it throughout the day. And whether that's while Zai is in, you know, doing homeschool and cause taking a nap, I race, you know, I race outside and I will literally do, you know, laps around the block, around the house. I'll do, you know, step ups on, you know, a the curb. Um, I just try to get it in any way that I can. And when my husband and I have to alternate, you know, um, we try to give each other that space to get that time for self-care and, and a workout in, even if it's just 15 minutes. It's so important. Yeah. A better you makes you a better mom in every way. Gabrielle Union, thank you so much. It was so great to speak with you. We really appreciate you being with us and motivating us. No, thank you so much for having me. As we continue to live through these challenging times, one thing that keeps us all going are the people stepping up to help their communities. And even when one San Diego mom struggled to keep food on the table for her family, she made sure her neighbors did not go hungry either. And joining us now from California is Amanda Faith. Amanda, thank you for joining us. We certainly appreciate it. And I know this pandemic has hit people around the world so hard. So tell us how it's affected you and your family. Um, and, you know, before the pandemic, we had daily re- routines and schedules and school sports. And then all of a sudden, there's nothing and it's like time stopped. So and uh, we had to go to several food banks, you know, almost every week and uh, use the school distribution site for the kids meals once in a while. So. It's different. Yeah, it's different. And a lot of people are asking for help. And not only were you on that side of the fence, you also decided to pitch in and start helping. You say before the pandemic, you didn't know your neighbors that well, but you knew many were elderly and they might need your help. So tell us what you decided to do. Um, You know, I've been seeing on the news that everyone's helping the elderly, checking in on them with well checks. So I went over there and uh, took some produce and a few groceries to see if they needed anything. And we exchanged numbers. So, but I, I haven't known any of my neighbors before any of this happened. So wow. It's- and, and, and now here you are helping them. You and your kids figured out a way to help the entire neighborhood. You started a food pantry in your yard. Tell me what the response yes. has been like. Well, it's. It's a lot more work than I thought, but it's it's kind of a learning process, you know, setting it up and everything. And I uh, sat down with the kids and we thought uh, what we should do with the food that we're not going to eat, but maybe another family would. So we decided maybe we could give it away and we just put it up front. It's pretty amazing. We have a message for you from one of your very appreciative neighbors. We'd like you to take a listen. Hi, Amanda. It's your neighbor, Eric. I just wanted to say thank you for helping to bring the neighborhood closer together with the advent of the food pantry and the open book library. My parents and I are very appreciative of your generosity and kindness. 
We've needed a few items, we've donated a few items. It really is inspiring to see the community come together and to be reminded that we're not alone. So thank you, Amanda, from the bottom of my heart. Wow. I hope you feel that love, Amanda and family, for all that you've done for your neighbors and are continuing to do. We are wishing you the very best. And again, so much gratitude towards you. Thank you so much. (laughs) And that's our program for today. I'm Amy Robach. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.